I was reminded this week of a story from a little while ago concerning a a town in Kansas named Piper. And I'm imagining it's a pretty typical Midwestern town. It was a farming community founded in 1888 and annexed by Kansas City in 1992. It's now mainly identified as a school district with about um, 1,300 students or so. It's the ordinary American character of this town that made a small cheating scandal in the high school stand out some years ago. Here's what happened. A biology teacher discovered that 28 of her students had stolen sections of their assigned project off of the Internet. She gave these students zeros for their efforts, and evidently that might have caused some to fail the semester. But a number of the plagiarizer's parents complained to the school board, which in turn ordered the teacher to raise the grades. She promptly resigned. A following school board meeting attracted an overflow crowd where community response was heard. Half the faculty and the principal vowed to resign by the end of the academic year over the board's intervention, while some others worried about the school's reputation and a potential decline in property values. Between interview appearances, several days later, the offending biology teacher said, it's not just biology, you're teaching them a lot more than that. You're teaching them to be honest people, to have integrity, to listen, to be good citizens. After she had been ordered to raise a student's grade, she reported that some students approached her and said, We won. And I wonder to myself what those complaining parents might have said if a large portion of their pension had been invested with someone like Bernie Madoff, the mastermind behind the world's largest Ponzi scheme. I bet they'd want justice. And I'm thinking they'd likely miss the connections with how integrity was modeled for their kids at school. Here we have an average Americans in an average American town going about the average business of raising kids, struggling to get ahead. Now, I'll go out on a limb here and guess that if I asked for a show of hands of those who ever cheated in some form or another in order to gain some advantage, and we were all, you know, ruthlessly honest with ourselves, we'd have a thick field of raised arms. The story came to mind to me because of our current cultural moment. Processing phrases like fake news 
and alternative facts. The news and blogosphere is awash in the claims and counterclaims of truth and fiction as it pertains to persons in the public sphere. And that got me wondering about how citizens today might respond to this comment made by George Washington. I hope I shall always possess firmness and virtue enough to maintain what I considered the most enviable of all titles, the character of an honest man. And man, I thought, doesn't that sound quaint and creaky today? You know, it could come from a fiction novel about an alternative universe. But then, you know, friends, it's hard to imagine leaders in nearly any field of endeavor today making that sort of statement, any field of endeavor. Have you ever heard anyone make that kind of a statement of any sort in recent memory? When you go home today, let me invite you, this sermon will be posted this afternoon, let me invite you to go find it and find this quote of Washington's. Let me repeat it. I hope I shall always possess firmness and virtue enough to maintain what I consider the most enviable of all titles, the character of an honest man or woman. Find that and say it aloud for yourself. Let it roll around in your mouth. See how it feels. I mean, it raises the question, is that important to you? Is it an important matter of character for you that you be known as an honest person? And here's a question that comes to mind as I'm asking it. Would you have a different standard about this for someone, say, in my occupation than you would for yourself? I ask because people have told me this over the course of my life, that they hold me to a different standard than they do for themselves. Just a curious aspect of my profession. How about our politicians? Do you have that standard for them? Of course, I do want to live with integrity. I tell you that. We might assume that's a prerequisite for my job, although as for that, the necessity for integrity, really, friends, isn't any different for the lawyer or the accountant or the financier or the biology teacher, or the school board member, or a spouse, or maybe most crucially, a parent. Anyone from any field of endeavor who travels any distance down the road called Christian with any level of sincerity comes to understand integrity as a very large concept that defines the universe of authentic life. 
The first dictionary definition says that integrity is the quality or state of being complete, wholeness, entireness, an unbroken state. The paradox for the Christian, the Christian discovers that integrity begins with the admission one doesn't really have all that much. In other words, with the admission of brokenness, with the admission of the truth about oneself. Sometimes we call this admission repentance. And if you follow that logic through, it stands to reason that a person with integrity will also display flashes of humility. You almost cannot have integrity without humility because it has to begin with honesty. Now, as you know, Christ Church, here we claim that love is our principal agenda. You hear repeatedly ad nauseum that we that loving God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves is our mission. That's an excellent mission. I mean, it's a wonderful, fantastic mission. But if love is the essential verb of a Christian life, I would tell you that integrity is the essential condition. Real love cannot happen without integrity. They come as a package. One of Christianity's foundational truths states that all of us are sprung from God. That's what the story of Adam and Eve is all about. They are nothing less than God's beloved companions who were fashioned in God's image. And if you recall, the Garden of Eden then is presented as a place of integrity. It is whole, complete, unbroken. Unbroken, that is, until temptation leads to corruption. And their corruption isn't really about eating a fruit, you know. It's about believing a lie that they too might become gods, that they could step outside of God's dominion and establish their own rules. Well, that's a pretty common temptation, isn't it? I know you understand that. I certainly do. We might say that's temptation with a capital T. It's the temptation that lies behind all other temptations. Every single one. From the biblical perspective, that is the fundamental corruption of our human nature, pretending something we are not. This pretense is a lie. The temptations Jesus experienced in the wilderness were an attack on his integrity, his wholeness, his completeness. As with Adam and Eve, as the story is told, the bearer of the lies comes in the form of Satan, who's been named in Christian lore as the father of lies. It's important to understand that we're not just simply talking here about telling an untruth. You understand that the lie is bigger than that. It is claiming something that is fundamentally false. The wilderness replaces the Garden of Eden in Jesus' story, where humanity now finds itself. Humanity now finds itself in the wilderness. The confrontation is intensely personal. 
It isn't sight like uh, some uh, disconnected temptation from Jesus. It is intensely personal. He is on the line. It happens out of you when Jesus is most vulnerable. And this extreme vulnerability accounts for our attraction to the story because we identify with his extreme vulnerability, you see, even if we have a very hard time admitting that we are, in fact, vulnerable. But it's so compelling because of that. He's alone. He's by himself. And he's grappling with the fundamental nature of who he is as a human person making his way in the world. Here is Jesus in his unadorned humanity struggling with the boundaries of his integrity. Now the choices he makes remain consistent with God's intervention intentions, which frankly seem much less glamorous than what Satan's offers, right? Satan tells him that Jesus could live like a God on earth. What stupid idiot would refuse that? Live into your powers, Jesus. Come on. Don't be a stupid fool. He could have it all. The only required thing involved what? Relinquishing his integrity. That's all. That's all it required. You might not be old enough to remember this, but in the 80s there was this awful, fabulous soap opera called Dallas. Those of you that are old enough know, remember? I know you know, Betty. Okay. It was on for a lot of years. It had one main awful character, J.R. Ewing. Remember? (laughs) This has stuck with me for decades. There was, I didn't watch it much, but there was one episode I remember in which J.R., in, in complete disclosure to some acquaintance, said, Gosh, once you lose your integrity, the rest is a piece of cake. <laughs> and that has stuck with me ever since. I think it's such a fabulous truth. The tempter wants to split Jesus' soul into divergent loyalties. Yet Jesus cannot live with integrity except by unswerving love for and trust in his Father. And there you see, love and integrity are revealed as inseparably linked. That's how it is for us humans. That's how we're made. You cannot love well if you are not a person of integrity. And if you are a person of integrity, you have the opportunity to love very well. It's the divergent loyalties that so confound us. For instance, we can believe our intentions are pure enough sitting in these pews on any given Sunday, yet completely miss how life on Monday has anything to do with the time we've spent here. Right? We're adept at rationalizing every sort of behavior under the sun, are we not? And by the way, I'm throwing myself into the basket here right along with you. If you want to know about a good rationalizer, just look up here. Our souls wind up broken into 
little unrelated compartments, not in conversation with one another. And then we wonder, then we wonder what on earth is wrong with our lives? How did things get so off kilter? What's up with our relationships? Why can't I figure it out? Why do we feel so alienated from ourselves and sometimes even from the universe itself? You see, integrity, I want to say again, begins with the acceptance of our situation as it is. And finds its fulfillment in unswerving love for God. At our beginning and at our end, at our birth and at our death, we belong to God. Most of us in this room would probably assent to that. At our birth and at our death, we belong to God. It's the time in between that we're not so certain of, you know? We're just not so certain of this time in between. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why Christians are so over-focused on the end times. It lets them off the hook for really grappling with the real meat on the bone, which has to do with how am I going to live today? What am I doing today? How am I living today? What's my integrity like today? What's the quality of my loving today? This time in between seems a lot like it's ours alone. Keep your hands off. And we can do with it whatever the hell we want. Thank you very much. And of course, I would be quick to add, the results of those choices in the meantime may be exactly what hell feels like. Might be exactly what hell feels like. You don't have to wait for it. So now, friends, I really take a lot of comfort in the knowledge that all of us, each one of us, shares this same predicament. We all share it. That feels good to admit. It's a place of integrity to say we're all in the same boat in this regard. Our struggles, though different in detail, are actually quite similar in their deepest essence. And I would tell you it is because most of us, much of the time, are pretenders. We prefer pretense to facts. But I take comfort that we all have the same divine lineage and that God loves us in our confused and broken state. I take great comfort in that. You are as loved as I am. I find great comfort in that. We are the same in that regard. In the scripture's poetic language, we hear how God sent angels to minister to Jesus. And the angels didn't come as a reward. They were named as a condition. <laughs> it was a condition 
They were always there. He was enveloped by God's Spirit. God abides no matter what. This is an aspect of God's integrity. He's the best lover there is. There is nothing finally that any of us can do or will do that will prevent God from loving us. Let me repeat it again because I think we let that wash over us in a fashion that we can't hear. In fact, we don't believe. Most of us believe in some form or fashion that we are unlovable and unsavable. But let me repeat it. There is nothing we could ever have done or ever will do that will prevent God from loving us thoroughly. Nothing. That's the promise. It's mind-blowing. But in that promise lies our hope. Thanks be to God.